The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Oh, would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. As long as you're here, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Ask Church Leander, won't you be my neighbor? Hey guys, how we doing? I'm going to say a prayer and then we will get into it, all right? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks for being a God who showed your love and continues to show your love for us as your children, for a world that is broken, and a world that you have plans for, good plans for. Lord, we pray that as we wrap up this series on what it looks like for us to love our neighbor and how in doing that we get to say thank you to you, Lord, uh, yeah, we just pray that you move us, you challenge us, you convict us, and you send us out uh, on your team. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Bye, Tori. Bye. (laughs) So we are in the season finale of Mr. Miller's Neighborhood. This whole series, we've been looking at what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourself. And we're at a time where we're not learning how to love our neighbor very well. In fact, there's the movie that's just coming out, right, with Tom Hanks. And it's been funny about how people are saying, we need Mr. Rogers to save us, right? Like, literally, like, we need this guy to come back because we are so good at fighting right now. We are so broken. We've gotten to these tribes where we just scream at one another. And so retelling Mr. Rogers' story and how he was able to talk about what it looked like to love our neighbor, right? And we talked over the weeks about he was actually a pastor. He was an ordained Presbyterian minister whose call was to be a televangelist to kids. And so the two main goals he had for Mr. Rogers' neighborhood was, A, to give kids a healthy way to be able to express their emotions and understand their emotions, and B, to teach them what it looked like to be a good neighbor, So I figured there wasn't a better cultural reference that we could use as we looked into that second command of Jesus, the first being to love God with everything we have, and the second to love our neighbor as ourself. And so this whole series, we've been unpacking that. And today's section of scripture is probably going to be the most challenging. It certainly is the most challenging to me. Uh, It was funny when Brian was reading it at the first service, he literally just stopped at one point. He's like, huh, this this is heavy. This is kind of hard. What, What is God doing here? Uh, and so we're going to dive into that. But before we do, this a brief history lesson that's going to kind of help frame some of the questions and some of the quagmires we get into within the church. So within modern Christianity, almost all of it, well, between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, right? The Protestant Church came out of a time where the Catholic Church had fallen into uh, some broken thinking. And the thinking went like this, where if you wanted to get to heaven, 
you had to give enough money to the church. And so they would sell these indulgences and they would sell these, hey, if you want to not go to hell, or if you're worried that your father or your grandfather or your grandmother, they might be in hell, you would buy these indulgences, you would pay for them, and that would build your way, that would get your way into heaven. And Martin Luther at the time was a monk, he was a priest, uh, and he was working really hard to get up to heaven. But no matter what he did, no matter how much he worked, no matter how many repentances, no matter how much money he gave, he just didn't feel like he was making it into heaven. And so he started reading the Bible, and as he read the Bible, he found that Jesus didn't talk about us having to build a ladder or a stairway to heaven. No. He read verses like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, not of yourselves, not by works. It's a free gift from God. And from there, that's how this second branch of Christianity broke away. This building on this foundation of we don't have to earn our way to heaven. God forgives us. God loves us. He fights for us because of the cross. He wipes the slate clean. All the brokenness that we've ever done, it all just disappears. And so that became the rallying cry of this church, of this Protestant movement. That became our main issue we became a hammer. And any time that someone says that you had to build your way to heaven, we would smack that nail down. But the problem with being a hammer is that it sees everything as a nail, right? It's always thinking that's the problem. And so when we read sections of scripture like Matthew 25, where it talks about what we're supposed to do and how that relates to us in heaven, it gets weird. It gets wonky. And so we're going to unpack that today and what that looks like and what God is actually saying and what it looks like to be on his team, what it looks like to be a good neighbor. And right before this section of scripture, all of Matthew 25, this is Jesus' last public teaching before he dies. And he talks about the end times. He talks about when he's going to return. He says, I'm going to die, I'm going to come back to life, and then one day in the future, I'm going to come back and we're going to settle an account. And so he talks about these three separate parables, these three separate stories. One of them is to be waiting for him and to be expecting that he's going to come. The second one says that he gives each of us talents. He gives each of us resources that we're supposed to leverage for his kingdom, for what God is up to. And then the third parable he tells, the third story he tells, is the story about the sheep and the goats. And it goes like this. When the Son of Man, this is Jesus, comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on the glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right, and he'll put the goats on his left. Jesus begins by affirming a simple but hard truth. In the end times, there's going to be two groups. Team Jesus and Team Darkness. Just two. Right? There's not going to be all these different segments. It's whether or not you are on the side of light and life and love and God, who is the source of all of that, or Team Broken World. And again, we see Team Darkness all the time. Right? We participate in Team Darkness. You turn on the news, and you're like, wow, this world is broken. You get a phone call from a doctor. And you realize this, this world is broken. Families, communities, neighborhoods, there's brokenness, there's hurt. Right? And that hurt perpetuates itself. It's a cycle. And it keeps on breaking down relationships. We talk about that a lot here, right? 
about how sin and the effects of sin, it separates us from God, but it also separates us from each other. It separates us from this world that was meant to be good. It actually separates us from the person we see in the mirror. Right? It's a broken world. And he talks about there being these two sides to that when it's all said and done. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and take your inheritance. For the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. I really was driving on that word inheritance this week. Last year, uh, my grandpa Luigi passed away. And I got a small inheritance from that and was able to pay off a little bit of debt. And it was great. It helped a lot. But as great as my grandpa Luigi was, right, let that sink in. You have an inheritance from God, right? He has more resources. He has more wealth. He has more power than the president or a king or a Saudi prince. He literally is the creator of the world. And it talks about how he has an inheritance that he has prepared in advance that he's been preparing since the dawn of creation, Jesus says. I go there to prepare a place for you. And one of the awesome things about being in the family of God is this promise that God is actually preparing something for us. That when we leave this earth, there is something waiting for us. And think about it. God created the world in seven days. He's been up there a lot longer than seven days, right? God has been working on this place for his family. And he wants you to be a part of that family. He has something for you. And he says that you're blessed by your father, by a family member, to be a part of this kingdom. And then he starts to describe what that looks like. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And I was a foreigner and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. This is one of those sections of Scripture that, again, coming out of the Protestant Reformation is challenging for us because we've got that hammer, right? And we know we don't have to build our way to heaven. We don't have to work our way to get up to where God is coming from. But then you read this, and it says, so you've got this inheritance for, and the Greek here is literally tying that inheritance to this thing. It says, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. You did all these good things. And so it's that challenge, right? It's that tension of what is God doing here? And a little insight into me, right, and my wife, and our community group. So we have a community group. Right now we're studying the book of John. And it's interesting to be a, bi a pastor in a Bible study. Because I try not to talk, right? Because I could just, like, oh, I know this, or I know that. So I try to be quiet. But eventually there are times there are questions. And the question will go around the room. And Zach Kohlinger, you're in my group. You can attest to this. What eventually happens? Everyone just kind of cranes their neck towards me. And they're like, well, Pastor Josh? What does it mean, right? And I don't want to just, it's not about like I'm trying to hide answers for people, but sometimes it's good to wrestle with text. It's good to wrestle with what God is saying. And our last community group, we were wrestling with salvation and some of the different verses about it, and I actually just made things more complicated. I read this section of scripture, and they're like, that doesn't help us at all. And I'm like, I know, right? But what it's talking about isn't that we are going to work our way to heaven. That is never in play. You never have to worry that you have to get to God. No, God's already come down to you. But, or I should say, and, that relationship comes with being on his team. 
comes with being on his side of the equation, and the fruit and the marks of being on his side of the equation, which at its core is love. In the Old Testament, you would see this in the Holy of Holies. So where God would hang out was in this temple. And in the, the temple, people would come and they would pray and they would offer sacrifices and they would read scripture. But at the center of the temple was a place called the Holiest of Holies. It was a big room where God hung out. But no one was allowed to go into that room. In fact, they had this massive curtain. And not like the kind of curtains you have at home. This thing was several feet thick, right? And it separated God from everyone else. And no one was allowed to go into the holies of holies. There was team God. There was where God was. And then there was the broken world where the rest of us were. And only once a year could a priest go in to make a sacrifice in the holies of holies. And he would literally have to like army crawl underneath this really thick curtain. And they tie a rope around him. Because if he wasn't good enough, if he wasn't pure enough, if he got smited going into that room, he'd be dead. And they couldn't go and get him. And so they would literally drag his corpse outside of the holies of holies. There was a very clear distinction. This is where God is at. And this is where we are. When Jesus dies when he sacrifices himself, when he says, this is how much I love you. Remember that game we played? How much do you love me? Do you love me this much? Do you love me this much? Do you love me this much? God says, I love you this much. And when he does it, that curtain rips in two at the temple. The thing that separated us from being with God in love and light and purity, that place, all of a sudden we have access to. And we get drafted onto the team of what he is doing. We get drafted into the love and the light and the fruit of his mission. And so we are not saved by works. But Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for you are not saved by works, saved by grace. This is not of yourself, so that no one may boast. Ends with Ephesians 2, 10. For you were created by God to do the good works that he prepared in advance for you to do, to be on his team. That's what this is talking about. And it continues on, and I love this. And then the righteous answer him, Lord, I'm pretty sure I didn't see you when you were hungry and feed you. I would have noticed that, right? I are thirsty and gave you something to drink. And when did we see you, a foreigner, a foreigner, invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. One of the most powerful things about loving our neighbor is that we're literally loving God while we do it. Think of you, those of you who have family or friends, and if one of them gets sick. So if you have a son or a daughter who's sick, and how powerless you can feel sometimes, right? And you're like, I just want to fix it, but you can't, right? Or you've got a family member who's far off, and they're in a different state or a different country. What happens when someone comes and loves on them? When they provide for them? When they find some way to rescue them or intercede for them or advocate for them? They do it for you too, right? You're part of their family. You're part of that goodness. And so when someone loves on my sister, when someone loves on my wife, they're doing it to me. And that's what God is saying. If you want to say thank you to God, if you want to worship God in purity and truth, when we love others, when we take care of their needs, 
Scripture says that we are doing that not only to them, but we're also doing it to and for God, and that is powerful, and that is an opportunity, and it changes then how we look at loving. Because it's not just, oh, I want to be a good person and love my neighbor. No, it's out of response for this God who loves us so much that he goes to any length to have a relationship with us. And it's out of response to that that we're like, hey, I want to say thank you to God. And every time we love our neighbor, every time we advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves, God says, you're doing it to and for me. And what he hears is, thank you, God. Thank you, Father. That's the opportunity that he's talking about here. The story goes on, though, because there are two groups. But then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, and into the entire eternal fire prepared for the devil and those of his angels. You see this compare and contrast, right? Blessed on one side, cursed on the other. Inheritance on one side, destined for eternal fire on the other. The kingdom of God on one side and the kingdom of the devil. Right? There are, there are two groups. And he wants everyone to be in the, the blessed. He wants everyone to get the inheritance. You are all created to be children of God. But the team, the life, comes with being connected to him. Because left to our own devices, all of us, myself included, at the front of the line, we all play on Team Dark. And that's what this next section of Scripture describes. It says, For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a foreigner, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't look after me. All of us, left to our own devices, will use some kind of ism to make excuses why we don't have to love someone. Materialism. My resources, not your resources. No, this is my checkbook. It's what I want to do with it. Tribalism. They're not a part of my tribe. They're different than me. My tribe is my family or my neighborhood or my whatever it is, whatever distinction we have to separate us, to give us an excuse why we don't have to love those people. Nationalism. Uh, They don't belong to my country. They don't belong to my nation. Not my problem. Socialism, capitalism, pick yourism. All of us have them. And left to our own devices, we'll just play by those. And those will dictate who we love and who we don't love. And yet what we see in Scripture is, no, we don't as Christians, we don't as children of God get to participate in that We sang the song last week, it's not us versus them, it's us for them. And everyone is included in the them. Again, this is hard because it goes against everything naturally we have in our being. It goes everything naturally against that I have. I am bent towards distincting, well, those people are jerks, so I don't have to love them. Those people are someone else's problem, and God doesn't give us as Christians that opportunity. I want to take a special note of this word, xenos. So if you were following along in your own Bibles, if you were in the NIV, all the words that we just read would have been there, except one. In terms of foreigner, it would have said, I was a stranger and you invited me in. Well, the Greek for that word stranger is xenos. It literally means 
foreigner. The word that we would use or you'd most commonly know in English would be xenophobia. Fear of the foreign born. And right now we are at a time where it's complicated. And so this is not a political statement, right? I get we need laws. We need to figure out order. We need to have a process in place, right? And we, we are bringing in immigrants. But I want to specifically talk about refugees. And I want to just be honest with you, this is very personal to me. My roommate in college was a refugee uh, from the uh, Hotel Rwanda, if you ever saw that movie, that genocide, that crisis. Well, uh, there was a group of children called the Lost Boys. And they were given a choice of be even either being conscripted into this army, this militia, where they were going to be trained to use machetes and guns, or they would flee. And so he was a part of this migrant of children, thousands and thousands and thousands of them that traveled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to get out of this country to get into safety. And I have never seen anyone hear his story and not halfway through just start weeping from the tragedy and the hurt. And yet, Abraham, when he tells his story, will correct you. And he'll say, no, because this is not a sad story. He says, you see, Jesus showed up. Jesus showed up in a church that brought me to Grand Rapids. And when I needed clothes, they clothed me. And when I was hungry, they fed me. And they invited me in, and they taught me about Jesus. Because you see, Abraham was born into a Muslim family, but he got here, and Jesus showed up via the church and told him the good news of a God who loved him. And so when you hear his testimony, when you hear his story of what God has done via the church to feed and to provide clothes, literal clothes, it's literally the gospel in incarnate form. If you look at the Hmong population in America, they started from a tribalistic, animalistic religion, and now they're one of the fastest growing ethnic communities for Christians. But the reason why I bring this up is something happened last month, and it was the first time it's ever happened in 35, 40 years since we've been tracking the number. We took in zero refugees in a month. For the first time, we said we are not going to take in anymore. We're full up. That is not the gospel. Again, this is not a simple topic. We are just screaming at one another, right? From the right and from the left. I'm not saying it's simple, but guys, Scripture is really clear. I was a foreigner. I was a Xenos, and you did not invite me in. Refugees are literally people who have been in the worst situations, who have lost their home, have lost their country, are at threat of losing their life. And as Christians, we are called to be advocates for them. And we don't get to say, well, they weren't a part of my country, or they weren't a part of my neighborhood, so they weren't my responsibility. That is not how Team Jesus works. That is not how we are called as Christians to work. Story goes on. 
And they will answer, but Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a foreigner and needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. There is a very dangerous lie in the church right now. And the lie goes like this. To get to heaven, you just have to know the right answer on a test. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. You have to let me in. And so when we talk about family members or we talk about others, we can justify, oh, they don't go to church or they're not a part of Christian community or they're not praying, they're not connecting to God, but you know what? They know the right answer to the test, so they're okay. That is not in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that you just have to know the right answer. We are to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Salvation without discipleship, without following Christ, is not salvation. Again, we don't earn it. We don't work our way up. Following isn't about building our way to heaven. Following is about staying in the room with God. It's about staying connected to the source of light in life and living that out via love to God and to our neighbor. And so it's not a... It's not something we're supposed to be terrified about. I talked a couple months ago. My family member, who when they were 18 walked away from the faith, and my whole family freaked out. My mom's crying, just chaos in the family, and I had peace. And five or six years later, when that family member came back to faith, and they asked why, and I said, well, I knew you were running away from God, and I also knew that God was chasing you, and I had more faith in God's legs than I had in your legs, right? I had more faith that God was going to pursue you, that God was going to hunt you down and wrap his arms around you and tell you how much he loves you, right? I love you this much. I'll die for you. And so I had more faith in God than I had in the individual. But I also wasn't kidding myself of, oh, it's so simple, so cheap, that all you need to do is answer a question and God has to. That's not how it works. That's not what discipleship looks like. I was thinking what story best illustrates this. And Peter's call to follow. Jesus does a miracle, a big miracle. Brings in all this fish. And all of a sudden, Peter realizes this is not simply another teacher. This is the Messiah, the anointed one. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell out Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. He's like, I am from the island of misfit toys. I'm broken. I'm on team darkness. I don't deserve to be in that temple with you. I don't deserve to be holy and love and good. Right? And so he's there with his friends. But what does Jesus say to him? But then Jesus said to Simon, and this is grace, this is divine favor, don't be afraid. I want you to be a part of my team From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled up their boats on shore, left everything, and followed him. Grace and discipleship. In fact, discipleship is grace. It's the opportunity to be in the room with God, 
to be in the world with God, full of light and truth and love and bringing his light and truth and love to every relationship. And Martin Luther actually got this. This is a quote from Martin Luther. God gives us grace, not so we can walk all over it as the world does, right? Not so we can treat it cheaply. But because God takes an interest in all we do to our neighbors, good or bad, as though we were doing it to God. If only everyone would regard their service to their neighbors as a service to God, the whole world would be filled with worship. God sees the love of neighbor as a way of saying thank you, as a way of singing praise to a God who loves us so we love others. So oftentimes we think of worship purely as with this hour that we have on Sunday morning, where there's music and there's prayer and we read Bible verses. But when scripture talks about worship, that thanking of God, it's actually something we get to do moment by moment, day by day, where we get to love our neighbor and in doing that, we're loving God. We're showing our gratitude and our thanks and we get to be on that team with him and see the fruit of that team where people like Abraham are brought into the family who had no right to be, right? Like he wasn't in the, he was born in the wrong spot in the wrong country in the wrong broken situation but Christians stood up and said we want to protect you. We love you. We want to advocate for you. And in that love, in that advocation, in that feeding and literally taking care of Physically, he heard the good news of why they were doing it. Because they wanted to say thank you to Jesus. And Jesus wanted Abraham to be a part of his family. And so Jesus, Abraham's story is not a sad one, but one filled with joy and laughter and life. Because we have a God who is filled with joy and laughter and light. And that's what he wants for the world. And that's what we get to be a part of as his church. Again, this is, this is hard because, again, we all play on Team Darkness. Right? I'm going to leave and someone's going to cut me off and it's not going to be Team Jesus that's going to show up. Right? Every day, we, we muck it up somehow. And yet we have a God who says, even when you muck it up, I fight for you. And so we build into our rhythm confession and absolution and communion a sacred moment, a sacrament where we believe God shows up. That he says, I'm going to be here, present with you. In, with, and under the bread and the wine, you're going to enter into the story. A story that says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He broke it. And he gave it to each of his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body which I break for you. And the same way also after the supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and he said, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood, which I will shed for you, a new covenant, a new way to connect to God, and communion, literally community union, a new way to connect to each other as well. I invite you to come up, both in confession that, yes, we're still broken, but also hearing the words of forgiveness that you are absolved, that you are loved, that you are still on his team, and that you get to be sent out as a disciple who is learning to love their neighbor. I invite those helping with communion to come forward as we continue our worship.
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.